How can you achieve and maintain business growth? Harvard Business School Executive Education is now accepting applications for a new program, Driving Profitable Growth. Taking place in Boston from October 25th through the 28th, this program focuses on business expansion and organizational growth strategies that can lead your company into the future. Learn more about this three-day program for senior leaders by visiting hbs.me growth. That's hbs.me growth. Time for another edition of Locked on NBA. I'm David Locke, the host of Locked on NBA, also the radio voice of the Utah Jazz. You can subscribe to Locked on NBA at iTunes or any of your podcatchers on Android. Please, if you get a chance, give us five stars along the way. Would greatly appreciate that in a nice comment. Locked on NBA is part of the Locked On Podcast Network. There's a lot of fun things going on the Locked On Podcast Network. If you haven't checked out for your favorite NBA team to see if there's a daily podcast about your team, check it out on the Locked On Podcast Network. There's also the NFL aspect is growing as we speak. Today's program is brought to you by Casper Mattresses. Use the promo code LOCKED on Casper Mattresses and get yourself a fabulous deal. I'll tell you more about Casper but obsessively engineered mattress at a shockingly fair price. $50 off if you use the promo code LOCKED. Also brought to you by Mac Weldon. Mac Weldon, who's got smart design, premier fabrics, and simple shopping. Just incredibly comfortable stuff. And that same promo code LOCKED gets you 20% off on Mac Weldon. Thanks to our sponsors, Casper and Mac Weldon. They allow this podcast to be free. You <clears throat> hopefully will support them as a way to say thank you. Our ho- guest today is Rob Mahoney. He writes for Sports Illustrated, does a fabulous job. You can follow him on Twitter at, at Rob Mahoney. He's written really good detailed pieces about all the free agency deals. He's done great depth pieces uh, recently about uh, – Players from Buddy Heald interview, a Utah Jazz piece uh, to others. So check all of his out stuff out at Rob Mahoney. And as is the Locked On NBA tradition, if you get a chance to send him an email at Rob Mahoney, excuse me, a tweet at, at Rob Mahoney, thanking him for the time on this podcast, I would greatly appreciate it. So thank you for tuning in. Grab your other your favorite team at the Locked On Podcast Network. Support Casper and Mac Weldon. And here is our podcast with a very, very good NBA writer, Rob Mahoney. We've had time to digest, Rob, what took place in that 10 to 12-day madness. Uh, do you think teams dealt with this new money correctly? Do you think teams are going to say, oh, dear goodness, what did we do to ourselves? Uh, what's your feeling on kind of how this is going to, we're going to look back to 24, 36 months from now on that spending spree that was that 10-day period in July? Yeah, I mean, correct is relative, right? Like, uh, you know, on, on the surface level, some of these signings are, are going to seem weird initially. Overall, I, I mean, I don't know that responsible is the right word because there's obviously a lot of money being thrown around. I just don't see many of the deals that have been brought in this summer as being those that would sink a franchise, those that would really compromise its cap picture, especially, you know, when you factor in next year's, you know, not quite as big of a jump, but another jump. I think 
when you're getting into two, three years into this kind of salary climate, that's when we're going to see things get get really hectic in terms of teams getting pinched a little bit by the moves that they've made. I, I just look, you know, looking at these individual deals, I don't know that there's any that I'd worry about that much. The only thing that jumped out to me during it, Rob, is a bad deal is still a bad deal. I thought sure. that was the only thing that got lost in the discussion is I get it that what was 8% of the salary cap is now a different number than was 8%, but misusing 8% of your salary cap is still a big deal. No, it definitely is. And I think there are players who understandably, and you know, people are trying to be as reasonable as they can be in terms of, as you're saying, portioning to the salary cap in terms of looking at, okay, well, we're still going to be able to get the max guy we want down the line. We're still going to be able to apportion this much space to, to improve our team. But I think there are players who, depending on the make of your team, you don't want to pick up under any circumstances necessarily. I think there are players who would give you really significant pause before you pick them up based on the style of play, you know, the character of the guy you're bringing in, the specifics of what you're looking to integrate. I mean, Rajon Rondo comes to mind in terms of a guy who, you know, even if I'm in the Bulls position and, you know, they're in a tough spot because of the point guard market and you know, they already kind of decided that they wanted to move on from Rose. But that's a move that, you know, even even not knowing that Dwayne Wade is coming there later in the summer, that's a move that would give me serious pause. And so there, there are a couple of those here and there that, uh, you know, are maybe matters of taste or matters of, of what you're willing to put up with as a franchise. But you're, you're definitely right in terms of there, there are going to be some bad moves here and some serious duds. I have a f- there are organizations that seem to have these very strict plans. That this is our next step. This is how we're walking into this. This is. Chicago, I have to say, may have surpassed Sacramento as the um, we fly with the, you know, the wind and wherever it's blowing and we'll just kind of react to whatever's next. I, I, I cannot find a congruency to the collection of moves they made in the offseason. Yeah, I mean, they kind of strike me as a team. They got caught in the middle of it a little bit in terms of where they are, in terms of their age curve, in terms of the talent on the roster, in terms of obviously the issues last year between you know your personnel and, and style that your coach, at least publicly, has said he wants to play. And, and when you get caught in between those variables, there, there's never really an easy way out other than to kind of take your medicine for a year or two. And Chicago has shown that they're not a team that is particularly willing to do that. So, you know, w- between the ownership considerations, between the spending patterns there, the types of guys that they that they like to bring in, the fact that they're not a particularly active in-season trade team, you know, they, they really put themselves in a tricky spot. And again, like some of these things are going to be matters of taste in terms of guys like Rondo, guys like Wade at this stage of his career, whether you want to pair those kinds of talents with Jimmy Butler and that kind of thing, whether you trust, you know, as the Bulls have said, smart enough players to figure it out. I don't know that I'm taking quite those same chances, but there are obviously internal pressures with the Bulls and with every franchise that have to be taken into consideration. Rob, you, you wrote that nice book about the Mavericks, and so you've been around a championship, uh, the 2011 title. Um, if I remember correctly from past conversations, you're a UT guy, so you've been around Texas and around San Antonio for a long time, even before the last four years when you were with SI. How do, you, how do any of us have any idea and maybe you've got more because you've been around a championship team and have that, of what Tim Duncan's departure is going to do to the Spurs. If I were, if I were San Antonio, I, you know, San, you know it's, a, it's a kind of a classic Greg Popovichism, this idea of having the appropriate fear of your opponent. And that phrase has come to mind for me a lot in terms of having the appropriate fear of what this is going to mean. And, and, you know, even, you know, bringing in Pau Gasol, who, who's a fine player, if maybe a little bit, 
overvalued relative to his statistical production at this point. You know, you have some some clear concerns there in terms of defense and rebounding and things like that. But just what you're losing as far as a pillar of the franchise and I mean, here's what it comes down to is if, if you talk to assistants, coaches, executives, anyone who's come out of that, that team over the last decade plus about Tim Duncan, if what they say about him is true, then that franchise could be in a world of trouble. And that includes Greg Popovich in terms of him saying, you know, really shifting a lot of the credit to Duncan in terms of the players falling behind him, in terms of everyone kind of following Tim's lead strategically, in terms of really kind of listening to Pop, in terms of doing exactly what he needs them to do. And for as great, you know, as a front office as they have, a great, you know, developmental staff, coaching staff, I mean, it's a great organization from top to bottom. But having a guy like Duncan changes the dynamic so much that, you know, even if you had the carryover from, you know, a, you know, a year or so of Manu Ginobili, however much he has left, or Tony Parker and going into Kawhi Leonard and Marcus Aldridge now, I would, I would be very concerned if I were the Spurs in terms of really maintaining the ridiculous string of success that they've had uh, over these last 20 years, basically. What is it those people say about Duncan? Just in terms of the uniqueness of, you know, falling into a player like that in the draft and what it affords you in terms of your flexibility and, and the kinds of players you can put around him, the kinds of people you can put around him because, you know, he, he's everybody's kind of favorite teammate in a way just because of the way he goes about his business, because of the way he conducts himself, because of being a no-frills guy. And if all of these kind of little factors add up in the way that the Spurs seem to suggest that they do, uh, then that's going to be a pretty big blow for them, just organizationally, structurally as a franchise. Rob, I've got a weird analogy I'm going to give you that relates a little bit to the Spurs with Duncan to Major League Baseball somehow. But first, let me tell you about Casper mattresses. Casper is a sleep brand that created one perfect mattress sold directly to you, the customer. It eliminates the commission-driven inflated prices that are out there on mattresses. It's an award-winning sleep, sleek design, and it's delivered in such a cool fashion. But let's get to the prices first. Mattresses often cost well over $1,500. Not Casper mattresses. $500 for a twin-size mattress. $750 for a full-size mattress. $850 for a queen and $950 for a king. The quality is awesome. They have an in-house team of engineers that have created, obsessively engineered this mattress to create a fabulous sleep. Springy latex, supportive memory foams for a sleep surface that gets you the right sink, just the right bounce, a breathable. It's just terrific. And it's so cool. It comes in this, like, box because they can do that, and then it comes out, and it's fabulous. It's it's won every award out there. Time Magazine named it one of the best innovations of 2015. It's an award-winning mattress. You get it for 100 nights risk-free. It's made in America. You can find out all about it. Go to Casper.com. Insert the promo code LOCKED. Casper.com slash LOCKED. You get $50 off those great prices I already mentioned to you. So... Check it out. I think you'll be amazed at what an incredibly innovative product it is and what a great night's sleep you get. Casper.com slash locked. Now here's my silly analogy. So I'm going to compare this to something, Rob, and you don't know me that well, but I really won't be mad if you tell me this is the stupidest thing you've ever heard because it, it, it might be. So many years ago, I was in Seattle uh, covering the Mariners. 
And Lou Pinella was one of these staple figures of the franchise, right? There are baseball managers that become bigger than the franchise. Earl Weaver in Baltimore, Sparky Anderson in Cincinnati, right? You, you, Whitey Herzog in Kansas City. You can kind of walk through. So I did this research project on what happens to these franchises when these marquee, I mean, they're, they, cultural change, they are the culture of your franchise at that point in baseball, if your manager's one of those guys. What happens when they leave? And what the, the study was really interesting, it was that they spiked the first year. That the, the carryover for one year of that manager leaving seemed to still be there, and maybe the heavy hand was less, and it worked. And that's how you get guys like John McNamara winning manager of the year and winning a World Series in Cincinnati. But that by the third year, those teams were all in last place. Do you, do you think there's any parallel? I don't think the Spurs end up in last place because basketball is a different talent game. But what that really said was, so the thesis I would take out of that is that these dominating characters are able to leave a residual impact for 12 months, but that it eventually it starts to kind of go away and that that impact obviously at some point dissolves. Do you buy that to the NBA and in the Spurs and maybe in Dallas with Dirk when he leaves here eventually? Or do you think it's such a different game that that doesn't parlay? Frankly, maybe to Miami uh, is in the same situation without Wade. What's your thought on that, Rob? Yeah, I mean, I think there's definitely something to it. And it's hard to assess these situations specifically just because, you know, as we mentioned, you know, Tim Duncan has just been such a pillar there for so long. Like so much about that, that situation is exceptional even within the game of basketball, even when you're looking at superstars who've been with a team for one time, even if you're looking at just great players who have been you know, around a certain core for a certain amount of time. It, so it's really hard to kind of calibrate for that exceptionalism within this kind of idea. I, I definitely see what you're talking about and see how it could translate. And I wonder, too, how much it has to do with kind of the overlap of the players who are there and how much you have to shuffle those guys out potentially to get in younger talent or different talent or different kinds of supporting players because so much of what you've done for so long has been built around a guy like Duncan. I think maybe what works for the Spurs' benefit is that they've just been so many different teams over the course of Duncan's basketball life in terms of, you know, we've seen them be a dominant pick-and-roll team. We've seen them be a dominant post-up team. We've seen them be a couple of different types of dominant defensive teams. We've seen them be, you know, a really three-point reliant team. So they've shown some ability to adapt. Obviously, Duncan is at the core of all of that. Uh, but the idea that they would be able to kind of move, that they'd be a little more agile strategically from some of these other teams, I think might give them something that some of these other potential sports franchises don't have, you know, whether you're talking about basketball or another sport. That said, I mean, w- whether you're talking about these little intangible things or just the hard basketball fact of, you know, that Tim Duncan, even last season, w- was a very successful player by most metrics. It's just not an easy thing to replace. And then culturally, like we've mentioned, the idea that you're just going to lose some of that over the course of a couple of years, I think is kind of a sad state of affairs, but, but maybe possible. What do you think happens culturally in places like Indiana, where Larry Bird clearly callously just kind of removed Roy Hibbert, pissed off David West, uh, left a voicemail for George Hill when they traded him, blew out Frank Vogel uh, for in a place like Miami where <clears throat> I think it's an untalked-about story. To some extent, Riley ran LeBron out, basically. We're not doing it your way. We're doing it my way. And now has done something similar to Wade. What do you think the lasting impact of those things are? I think it's probably pretty significant in terms of 
maybe misunderstanding is the wrong word, but, but certainly a misread of kind of where the NBA is right now and what the Colts personality surrounding executives and general managers and whatnot should be. Obviously it has a lot of clout when a guy like Pat Riley can walk in and put rings on the table when he can pitch you based on this past history. And, and, you know, there's, there's an aura around him that players definitely respect, but I mean, the Indiana situation to me is particularly vivid just in terms of, as you mentioned, just categorically down to a man, the disassembly of that team in such a public an obvious way where they don't allow really any of the players involved to save face, you know, where it's, you know, they're, they're, this is, you know, they're really downgrading Roy Hibbert's role at the exit interview press conference where, you know, they're putting David West in this difficult position where he's willing to leave so much money on the table just to get out of there. And, you know, it's all of those little things where even just some courtesy might go a long way in terms of your relationship with players or potential future players. And obviously they were able to bring some guys in this summer. So it's not as if Indiana is just completely dried up uh, as a place where some players might want to play or guys want to play with Paul George or, or play for Nate McMillan or what have you. I, I just, I, I would again, be very cautious if I were in that position, especially with a guy like Riley, for example, or bird who these guys who are aging beyond a certain point where they're not going to be around for the next potentially 10 years of your franchise, even if you wanted them to. And for them to really establish that this is what your franchise is going to be over the course of, of their career, their, of their term there, it, it can set a very dangerous precedent with agents, with players around the league in terms of what your franchise stands for that, that may not be something you necessarily want to last. I know a lot of people are positive about what Indiana does, did. I don't get it at all. What confuses you about it? Well, I think I like George Hill more than Jeff Teague, so I, I guess that would be the first thing. I'm not sold on Jeff Teague. Um, I think there's a lot of high – I think we're uh, – in this point guard era, we're having a hard time separating who's good and who just gets to use the ball a lot, right? The high pick-and-roll game makes a lot of point guards put up numbers. I still think that Monte Ellis – I'm not a Monte Ellis guy. and I don't understand how Al – if they're supposed to speed up and play faster, I'm not sure I really understand how Al Jefferson fits – and then if we're trying to speed up and play faster to free up Paul George to have some space, I'm not – maybe I'm wrong on this, but if Paul George has got the ball and he's kicking to Thaddeus Young, Monte Ellis, or Jeff Teague as sh- spot-up shooters, none of them scare me if I'm the other team. Nor does, no, Rod- nor does Rodney Stuckey. Uh, nor, right? I mean, like, just I'm looking at that roster. Like, and I'm trying to figure out, like, so your slowdown Al Jefferson in the post lineup – you're surrounding them with what shooters that make Al Jefferson a valuable one-on-one player in the post. Yeah. I mean, I think it's definitely the classic kind of let's get a bunch of small guys in order to play faster scenario where, you know, even going back to last summer where you're, you know, you're getting Monte Ellis where you're getting, you know, resigning Rodney Stuckey where, you know, they, they even had some, some problems filling their wing spots, filling their wing minutes in the ways that they needed to play that way. And now you're losing Solomon Hill potentially, which is fine if the result of your own uh, decision to decline his team option. I, I, I find the same issues in terms of you know the big you know or the slow fast problem with Al Jefferson. I think it kind of works as a value proposition in terms of kind of an occasional thing, just as a guy who you can plug that spot. But if if I'm the Pacers, I mean, I, I, I share your opinion in terms of Jeff Teague and George Hill. I don't see how that's an upgrade at all. I think that part of what made Monte Ellis even remotely palatable there was the idea that you had both Hill and George on both sides of them, both sides of him rather, 
to handle, you know, some defensive mismatching, some cross matching, uh, that you can hide Monte a little more effectively. That yeah, if you want to put the ball in Monte's hands and play to his strengths in that way for stretches at a time, then Hill is a much better off ball player. And as you mentioned, Thaddeus Young doesn't quite fit into that mold as well, even if you want to go smaller, a little more a little quicker. And you're just relying so much on Miles Turner, especially defensively, where Jan Mahimi, I thought, did an incredible job there last season. And it's understandable why they would want to kind of move a little younger, why they want to trust Turner, why they want to give him more responsibility. But in terms of that being a good team this year, in terms of that being a good playoff team this year, I, I have serious doubts. My, I hate, I'm scared of this next question, Rob, because I'm getting old. Right? Like, my son's, it's my son's 14th birthday today. Like, I can't be 24 anymore if I have a 14 year old. So, I've become old. I'm nervous that I've become a dinosaur because I read about everyone going small and, and I'm trying to figure out where it's working. Like, I got it's working with the Warriors. They're not great because they're small, they're great because they're great. I yeah. get LeBron played the four a bunch. They're not great because they're small. They're great because they have LeBron. I watched Washington try to go small last year. They looked ridiculous. I watched Indiana try to go small last year. It looked ridiculous. I'm lost. I get that we're trying to go skill. I get that we're trying to go versatile. Why are people still trying to go small? I don't think it matches. In Indiana, I guess, would be my prime example. Skill and versatility, yes. Just small and fast, there's nothing that shows me in anywhere in any analytics that playing fast leads to wins. No, I, I think it is what you mentioned in terms of conflating those things. I mean, you want, if, if, to the extent that you want small guys, you want small guys who can do things. And I think you're right in that a guy like Teague, for example, who is a fine enough player, but he's not moving the needle for you in that way. He's not changing what you do in any meaningful way relative to what you had before. And certainly in terms of your lineup compositions, I mean, it just doesn't alter anything except maybe take some things off the table when you move from George Hill to him. It's, it's, it's a complicated trend because it's, you know, you can definitely see the NBA chasing its tail a bit in terms of, oh, we have to shoot more threes. Oh, we have to get faster. Oh, we have to get smaller because, as you mentioned, whether it's the Warrior, what the Warriors are doing, whether it was what Oklahoma City was doing at points last season, um, even though they ended up kind of going big in the long run, I I think it's something that teams have ultimately kind of talked themselves into at this point, even without, as you mentioned, necessarily the body of work to support that kind of decision, just because they've seen, you know, I think it was into the same kind of defeatist attitude that we saw from some, you know, kind of back channels from executives and coaches last season in terms of talking about how good the Warriors were. And if you couldn't keep up with that, then what are you doing as, as a potential contender, as someone who wants, has any place in, you know, trying to advance deep in the playoffs, if you can't keep up with what the Warriors are doing, uh, then you really have to rethink your plan. And so a lot of teams have done that. A lot of teams have really gone back to the drawing board, have scaled smaller and smaller with the idea that we have to keep up with Steph. We have to keep up with Clay. We have to have a center who can guard Draymond. And they're sacrificing so much of who they are and so much of their talent and so much of what they had to get to that point. There's certainly something lost around the league in terms of that tactical give and take. So I didn't actually mean for this to be like a complaint session, but we've, I've basically have. I've done that to Chicago. Let's do it. And I've done that to Indiana. You wrote an interesting piece that the Jazz, in your mind, are the opposite. They're not Chicago blowing in the wind. They were very process-oriented. And that they have now built a roster that is uh, incredibly complementary with each other. Yeah, yeah. I think a lot of it has to do with when you are a young team who reaches that point where you decide – 
okay, now we need to start bringing in some veterans to complement what we have. Now we've getting, gotten far enough in terms of our individual player development that we can you know, scale some of those efforts back for the sake of really finding the right fits. And I think that Utah did such an incredible job, and some of it is chance, and some of it is, is smart you know, opportunism, some of it is getting targeting the right guys and going at them at the right time in terms of finding guys who are going to fit the way they play now so well and who are ultimately going to be so transitional to the guys that they ultimately want to be filling those spots or the guys that they would ultimately want to bring in. I mean, George Hill to Dante Exum is kind of a perfect example of that to me where, I mean, I'm a big George Hill booster. I think he's, you know, one of the more underrated players in the league. I think he can do a lot with the ball in his hands, as we saw when Paul George was out for the season, basically. Uh, And, you know, he was running a lot of their offense when he was healthy, did a really good job in the pick and roll. But if you need him to be that thought of guy, if you need him to, you know, compliment wing playmakers like the Jazz have, he's so comfortable doing that. And then maybe he could run a little second unit offense for you. And by the way, He's you know, a long, really athletic defender who can cover a couple of different positions. And if that's not kind of the template for, and maybe you want a little bit more out of what Dante Exum might eventually be, but if that's not kind of the basic template for where you want his career to go, then I think maybe you're misreading you know, what, what Exum's value would be. But you know, just the idea that these guys can, can kind of segue them while elevating them and while getting the Jazz you know, really into the thick of the West at a time where there's a you know as we mentioned with the Spurs and then, you know, Kevin Durant leaving the Thunder, there's an opportunity here to stake some, stake a claim to some ground in the middle of the West or in the upper, you know, the upper tiers of the Western Conference. And the Warriors are going to be, you know, obviously very difficult to keep up with and to keep pace with, with the changes that they've made. But in terms of the rest of the teams, I think the Jazz are, are in a really competitive spot. More on George Hill, comparison to Dante Exum, Joe Johnson, Boris Diaw, and those moves by the Jazz. But, uh, let me tell you about one of our sponsors, Mac Weldon. Mac Weldon is a company that makes comfortable underwear, socks, shirts, undershirts, hoodies, sweatpants. I, I, I adore their stuff. Uh, I just get so excited when the Mac Weldon product comes to my house. It's such an easy, easy experience. You go to MacWeldon.com. You can individually order, or one of the things I like to do is order the packages. They got fun little names on them that get you all sorts of collections. In fact, if you're going to try them out, Maybe that's the way to do it. Not only do their underwear, socks, and shirts look good, they perform well, too. You don't really want me talking about my underwear too much, but I would tell you that I really like the boxer briefs. That's the best product I have found out of them yet is the boxer brief, uh, the material. They've got a nice uh, hard – not hard is the wrong word – a good hold on your legs so they're not riding up. That's what I was trying to say. I just didn't want to talk about underwear riding up and making you think it was weird. So really check out their boxer briefs. I, I really like that. Their T-shirts come in different in different ways. They have uh, the silver, which is uh, really, really nice, and supposedly it is made so that you don't stink as much. Now, I'm, of course, I would never stink, but all right, but I bought all silver shirts to prevent that I don't. I'll admit that. They also have the Pima cotton, which is really, really nice. I got two pa- two of those in my last Mac Weldon offer. Uh, check it all out. I really think you'll like their stuff. You'll be amazed how comfortable it is. The best way I can describe it is uh, when I'm putting the laundry away, I always know which one the Mac Weldon shirt is because it's the one that's softer and nicer and better uh, made than all the other ones that I have in, in my back in my stuff. So MacWeldon.com. Use the promo code locked i think you'll be really really pleased it's it's really it's just better than whatever you're wearing right now mac weldon promo code locked if uh, dante exum becomes 
two years ago, George Hill at 16 points, uh, four rebounds, five assists a game while shooting 48% from the field and 36% from three. Uh, I think everybody in Utah would be perfectly pleased with that. Right? I mean, that's I would, the two I would hope so. But, but how many people are pleased with George Hill? It seems like he's one of those guys who always is kind of, oh, he's a nice player, but. And I think, I think he's awfully good. I ran at some incredible numbers, and I don't know if I can get to them right now, Rob, and I'll, I could try quickly. And, of course, anytime you try to run numbers live, what happens is you end up getting them right after the conversation ends, and I'm guessing that's what's going to happen here too. But I ran some interesting things on George Hill with Monte Ellis on and off the floor last year. Mm-hmm. And it was basically that George Hill that played, that carried that franchise, exists it just didn't exist if he had to turn the ball over to Monte Ellis the whole time. Now, in Utah, in fairness, he may be turning the ball over to Rodney Hood and uh, Gordon Hayward all the time, but I would also like to believe that those two players may not be quite as selfish as Monte Ellis. Well, and just the general, the general nature of the offense is so different. You know, If anything, U- Utah last year, their offense, it was just such kind of a grind through some possessions in terms of overpassing at times, in terms of, getting into spots where they're forced to pass, but it's not necessarily a productive pass. I mean, it was these long, drawn-out possessions where guys are going to get the ball. Like, George Hill's going to get a chance to attack or close out. He's going to get a chance where things swing his way. He's going to get a chance to initiate as, as the primary guy in a pick-and-roll. Those opportunities are going to be there, even with, as you mentioned, Hood or Hayward or you know Joe Johnson, or if you want to run some, some high-post offensive boards, Diaw, or whoever it ends up being that's initiating things, Hill's going to get those chances. So, you know, just by the way that the Jazz move the ball, the way that they like to conduct their offense, and I know that they're trying to speed things up a little bit or, you know, change some of their pacing within those sets a little bit, but ultimately that's who they're going to be. And that's why, you know, passing was such a priority for them. At least that's what Dennis Lindsay told me uh, in terms of some of their offseason plans, finding the right guys who, who are going to be playmakers for them. And I think that's a smart fit. Well, uh, by the way, I found it. Uh with Monte Ellis off the floor, George Hill shot 47% from the field, 43% from three last year. Mm. On the floor, he shot five percentage points less good from t- overall and three percentage points less from three. <laughs> Playing alongside Monte Ellis, never as easy as it seems. No, actually, I'm not sure anyone's ever done it well. Um, all right, so uh, what's your thought on 35-year-old Boris Diaw or maybe even 36-year-old Boris Diaw and 35- or 36-year-old Joe Johnson uh, adding to that veteran mix of a bench? It, it looks good, but they are that's, that's getting up there. That's a few rings around the tree in the NBA world. Yeah, and especially, I mean, Diaw in particular, who, you know, was a DNP CD for the Spurs in the playoffs uh, for, for good reason, I think, in some cases, in terms of not being in the best shape of his career, not being in the best, you know, playing position of his career, not just, you know, he, he wasn't quite Boris Diaw in terms of what we had gotten used to from this kind of really important stretch big who can switch, who can shoot, who can do all these things. He wasn't that guy, and he really probably isn't going to be that guy anymore. But in terms of a utility big who, on a night where you just need a little more punch in terms of that, getting that last pass through when the defense is, is really tightening up on you, on a night where maybe Trey Lyles isn't having the night that you want him to or, or you want to go a little smaller at center or you want to just throw a different look out there. I mean, I don't see, see Diaw playing a ton of minutes for them, but having the option is always nice just because what he gives you is so different from what most traditional bigs give you. I think Johnson they had the right approach in terms of looking at him as really almost a three, four. And you're looking, you're, you're really playing to his physical strength in terms of his ability to defend those spots, 
you know, you're going to give up some in terms of rebounding. He's not going to be as effective of a post-up player if you're, you know, playing against bigger guys. But I think he has, you know, he's a good enough shooter. He's a smart enough player. Uh, he, he can really work within the, the confines of what the Jazz do effectively enough to contribute. Again, you're, you're not really looking for guys who are, are going to be providing a star-level impact. You're really playing on the development of the guys you have, a steadying force on a team that was hit hard by injuries last year and was therefore kind of forced to be a little shallower than they might have liked in some areas. And so when you're complementing that with some veteran depth that, that can help you be whether proactive with injuries or reactive with injuries in terms of filling those minutes, I think that can help a lot. So the Jazz make this kind of the subtle moves. They didn't headline it. Uh, the headliners, I think, unquestionably improved teams. We'll, we'll touch on them before we finish. Are Golden State and Boston uh, with Al Horford and Kevin Durant. What other teams do you feel are considerably better than they were when the season ended uh, and maybe moves that weren't as obvious to everybody else? I think in your article you made it clear you thought that about Utah. Who else would you put in that category? I'm not sure that there are that many, to be honest with you. I mean, there are some that are going to be better for other reasons. A team like Minnesota comes to mind just in terms of their age curve, in terms of their coaching change. They're obviously going to be improved. But it, when you look at what's happened to free agency or the off season, or, you know, even kind of compounding the draft into that, there's some long-term processes that, that are going to need some time. And there's a lot of kind of big, big question marks uh, or teams that are kind of, they've, they've made really significant stylistic changes that may ultimately kind of put them about where they were before or a slight step down from where they were before. Atlanta is a team that comes to mind just as, you know, transitioning from Al Horford to Dwight Howard. I mean, that's about as significant at the center spot as you're going to get in terms of the way that those guys like to play uh, their usage within the offense, how they like to play defense and what they're good at there. Uh, and, And there's kind of a lot of teams in that boat to me where it's teams that are doing some kind of strange things like in Orlando or, or even a team like like Portland, who's done largely good things, you know, whether it's retaining their own guys or, or bringing in Festus Azili, which I think works for them, but also kind of doing this weird Evan Turner thing on the side. So I don't know that any other team has radically improved so much. It, it looks like kind of the same league as we left it, other than, you know, Durant, Durant moving on, Tim Duncan retiring and putting San Antonio in kind of a weird spot. Maybe the Clippers, just by nature of their relative positioning, are in a better position now than they were a couple of months ago. Uh, or, or some of these other teams, you know, kind of in the middle of the East or the middle of the West, just by how some of the players have left or, or kind of, uh, move, you know, move from team to team. But I, I really don't think that there's been that much significant improvement. This is a little bit like asking um, – uh, never mind, I'm not making political jokes. Um, <laughs> so hard not to these days, but I vowed not to do it. I will not make friends if I do. Um, so very blasé question instead. I don't think there really are any threats to the Warriors or the Cavaliers. Um, but do you, if you had to choose a threat on each side to them, who, who are your threats on each side? I mean, in the East, I think it has to be Boston just in terms of they're not a threat right now, but I think Al Horford in his current state is still a really good player. You know, maybe he's not at the end of his contract, but for this coming season, he's going to be a good player for them. And, they have the mobility to make another deal. And I think that's what you're kind of looking for in terms of how would you potentially challenge the Cavs because the talent base on these other rosters just isn't going to be good enough. And you see the same thing in the West with the Warriors. So I, I would go Boston in the East. I think, you know, so much of what they struggled with last season was, you know, you could trap Isaiah Thomas so easily and they didn't have the complimentary playmakers. They didn't have a guy who could, you know, whether a short roll or kind of stop at the high post who, who could really kind of facilitate for them if you took away their one trustworthy ball handler, really, and that put them in a tight spot. Horford is definitely that guy. 
And, you know, when you have the picks, when you have a lot of young players who are attractive to other teams around the league, you know, maybe it'll require a bit of a roster overhaul, but I think they have the potential to, to move upward more than pretty much other t- any other team in the East does. As for the West, I mean, I, I don't think that the Spurs are positioned well right now to contend with what the Warriors are. I don't think, I certainly don't think that the Thunder are in any position to do it. I guess I would have to go with the Clippers just in terms of that was a team that last year went healthy, you know, gave, gave the Warriors a good punch on a few occasions. You know, they, they had trouble finishing a lot of those games and, and really holding on to it. But I just don't see a lot of attractive options in terms of, oh, this is definitely the team that's going to keep up with the Warriors. You're tall enough. You could play small forward for the Clippers. <laughs> they might need me. It's crazy. It's absolutely crazy. What is who are the Houston Rockets? I'm that might be the team. I like. I'm trying to figure out what they're going to look like. I'm I'm figuring out the same. Uh, we'll have a piece on that coming up on SI actually later this week in terms of going through some of their offseason moves and things like that. Uh, I, I'm very curious, especially with their backcourt composition, and, and it really seems like Eric Gordon and James Harden are going to be playing a fair bit together. And I, I do wonder some of what they see there in Gordon and what they they have in Ryan Anderson. You know, I will say there's some individual synergies on the roster that do make a lot of sense. If you I mean if you have Clint Capella and there's a lot of reason to like, you know, what he could ultimately be as a player. Ryan Anderson is a guy who makes so much sense next to him individually. And there's kind of these little like little pairings all kind of throughout the roster that okay, that makes sense. That I can see where they're going with that. I can see why that would work. But ultimately in the big picture, I'm not seeing how this aggregate results in a team that is even really guaranteed a playoff spot. I think that, you know, when you're looking at Utah, as we said, it being improved, when you're looking at New Orleans being potentially a lot healthier, and they've made some pretty subtle additions uh, this summer to improve. And you're really looking at, you know, which of these playoff teams are going to be potentially dropping out. You know, Dallas might be in a position to do that. Obviously there's going to be kind of a wild card injury with one of these teams. I'm sure it's going to cost them some games or cost them some traction. Uh, But Houston is another team that could be in that spot. And, you know, they're really going to need, so much from James Harden, not only in terms of creation, but in terms of really resetting that franchise from a culture and leadership standpoint. And and as we mentioned, I I just don't know that it's going to be there in terms of adding up in a basketball sense. I don't know that the defense, it certainly doesn't appear to be there in terms of their roster composition. I'm sure they're going to score a ton. I'm sure they're going to be very efficient offensively based on the style they like to play. They finally have shooters to justify, you know, their three point rate which will be nice to see and interesting to see how that works with Mike D'Antoni. But, I mean, they, they certainly don't look, at, like like we mentioned, like a playoff-worthy team that's really going to make any significant noise. Sorry about that. I have no idea how someone just called while I'm on the phone, but that's a new, that's a, that's a new feature I didn't know existed. Thanks for fighting through that, Rob. That was very, that was very impressive. I must, I, you know, it's a podcast. We're a little more low key. I'm just going to give you credit. Um, you stayed immensely focused while that sound, uh, was running through you. Uh, I thought that was good. All right. So we're 30 minutes deep and we haven't mentioned the Warriors other than this offhand kind of looming white elephant that's out there. We haven't mentioned the Cavaliers either. Um, in fairness, probably should. So let's wrap up on those two. Um, we'll go forward, looking forward with the Warriors. Are, are you fascinated by this? Do you think it's going to be awesome? What is your feeling on what this Warrior team looks like? I am, I am of the this is going to be awesome camp, certainly. I know that there's some looming dread for some people. I know that certain, you know, there's certainly a, an element in journalism that's a little worried about, you know, how do you even cover a team like this that, that could run over so many potential teams? What is the intrigue going to be uh, when, when a team is so obviously talented and so obviously good? 
I kind of just want to see, you know, there's an element of almost like you mentioned with the baseball managers or, or like you would see with a coach in the NBA when all this talent is stripped away, like what can he really give you? Or, or, you know, moving one star player to another place and what can he really give you with this entirely new setup? To me, the intrigue here is, is so much about, I mean, what is, what is the optimum offensive efficiency that you could possibly get from throwing out so many clearly amazing players that are so clearly complimentary and that can play in a way that no one else in the league can keep up with? Even if you go small, even if you go as fast as you can, even if you put as much length on the perimeter as you have on your roster, it's just not matching what the Warriors are able to put out. And so I'm, I'm very interested to see, just from a curiosity standpoint, where this maxes out because this, this has the potential to be an all-time great team. This has the potential to be a, you know, a, a dynasty in, in terms of championships, in terms of contention, but really just in terms of the metrics, in terms of where this team is going to grade out statistically. I mean, I think it may be something unlike anything we've ever seen before. I love what you just brought up there. I brought this up a lot. Like, what is the maximum offensive efficiency? Dallas had it for a while that before they made the dreaded Rondo trade, they had one of the great offensive teams of all time. They had brought it to a new level. Like, are we can the league average is about 1.03 uh, points per possession. That's about the league average. Like, are we going to go to one? 1.15 or we're going to go to 1.2 like how high what what's like the maximum offensive efficiency that actually might exist i have no idea I, what i do know is that the watchword for this season is historic because you're going to see that pop up in so many warriors gamers and so many you know kind of recaps of what their week or their month or their stretch was like the potential for that team and it goes so far beyond just the idea of like okay if you take harrison Barnes's shots and give them to kevin durant what does that look like it's just the compounding variables of what he brings to Steph, of what he brings to Clay, of how Draymond fits into all of that. I mean, even some of the other, you know, even bringing in a guy like Zaza Pachulia just to fill things out, just to, to balance things. And, you know, he's not going to give you a lot offensively, but just to carry over the minutes that would have drained Draymond Green otherwise if you were forced to play too much center, having sacrificed Andrew Bogut for, for you know, the financial reasons. There's, there's just so much going on there in terms of how those guys are going to feed off of one another. Uh, and Durant in particular, I, I'm looking forward to see if how how willing and how engaged and how dialed in he's going to be to that style of play. Because if he is, if he's the guy who's going to play along with the way that the Warriors like to run, it's going to be something special. The uh, <clears throat> it will be interesting to see. I, I, I'm with you. I'm curious to watch it, uh, see how it all plays out. I have a statistical model, Rob, that I run uh, on how to evaluate players and just an offensive model. Uh, I ran it trying to do some team stuff with it the other day. It thought there was a possibility that the Warriors could win 85 games. I I had to let it know that that actually is not possible. Um, But that's kind of where it is. I mean, I I don't want to bore you with it. and A lot of my audience has already heard it, so they don't want to hear it. But basically, I look at points above average created is is the model that I use. and, And the concept of it is, that basically if you use 10 or 12 possessions a night, I go look at what the average player uh, would have created in that circumstance and then, and then take a look at you know, what you are. Well, there's only there are two guys that are better than everyone else in the whole league. Right? So Steph Curry last year was 5.8 pack, and Kevin Durant was 4.1. The next closest is 2.8. And so Steph Curry averages 5.8 points above average player with his possessions. Durant's at 4.8. That, that's 9.9, that's 10 points above average with those two players alone. 
there's only five other players in the league that actually average two above average. Like, you can't catch them. It's mathematically impossible. I don't know if that made any sense to anyone. If you're still with us after 35 minutes, you probably aren't leaving us now, so I just made you really confused like the Coyote in the Roadrunner cartoon. But, like, like make sense. Like I'm trying to make sense of it, and it doesn't make sense. There, there's, there, those two players by themselves – are so much more offensively efficient than anyone else in the NBA. And oh, by the way, Rob, of those five other players that are above two, Clay Thompson's one of them. <laughs> just to rub it in. It's just absurd. All right, so let's wrap this up on this. We've we've had free agency. I feel like the one thing that none of us got a chance to sit back and digest is what LeBron really did. Now that we're a month removed. What did he really just do, and how historic was it? I've definitely had those moments uh, in terms of this offseason, looking back, and you obviously remember the, the Warriors' regular season. And it, has to, it has to click for a moment still that the Cavs won, that, right. especially in Game 7, that some of those plays were actually made, that, that he got that chase down block, that some, of the, that some of the jumpers went down, that Kyrie Irving hit the shot that he did. I, I mean, it, it's as impressive of an elevating finals performance as I think you'll ever see in terms of the quality of the competition, in terms of what they did, in terms, you know, coming back in that series, really battening down the hatches, changing what they did in so many ways, tweaking the rotation. And LeBron is obviously at the center of all of that as he, he radically changes what you can do around him in the way that almost all great players do and the kinds of lineups and the kinds of strategies and, and you know, his ability to control the ball and put Kyrie in different spots or, you know, put Kevin Love in different spots or what he opens up for Tristan Thompson. I mean, I, I'm in awe to say the least. I, you know, we've seen some great performances from LeBron. He certainly had some, some you know, bigger outputs. He certainly had some more impressive triple doubles or scoring totals or things like that. This was, this was something else. I mean, this was, you know, even taking away kind of the narrative power of, of bringing what he did to Cleveland and, and, obviously how much that meant to him and to that city just in basketball terms. I mean, that game seven was an incredible game. I think a lot of the series in the finals was, was a little more lopsided than people would have liked. It was a little, a little different in terms of the way it actually played out, but it, it finished in just about the best way that you could expect a playoff series to. And, and LeBron was everything that you would expect the best player on the championship team to be. I've openly called game seven, the greatest game in the history of the NBA. Yeah. I have no. I don't even think this. I like. I. I don't. I'm a pretty good NBA history. I haven't written this 800 page book about it, um, but I'm pretty good. I know most of it. I don't actually know if it's even close. When you just start to link, and I actually think it'll become. It'll be. It is going to be larger as time goes on. Like it's either what led to the Durant dynasty in Golden State. It either becomes the signature moment of LeBron's career, of where he elevates himself. If we look back and he gets a few more, I, I think it will be it, at the time. I think it's the greatest game that's ever been played, and I think it will historically become the most important. How's that? You buy that? I mean, there's definitely something to the importance angle, especially as you mentioned, even if this just triggers a ridiculous Warriors run, the idea that he was able to get in before that started, especially given the way the last year's finals went and the precedent that you would expect uh, based on that. You know, obviously their injuries played a big part in terms of the way the Cavaliers played in those finals, but it, it just seemed so fruitless. It seemed like 
if the Warriors are playing like the Warriors, that they're going to be able to handle this series, that, that the Cavs aren't going to be able to match up with them in the ways they would like. The guys, certain guys in, on the roster are going to be overwhelmed defensively. And it, it was just sturdy enough in terms of some of those question marks, in terms of Kyrie Irving's defense or Kevin Love's defense or, you know, plugging in Richard Jefferson and seeing whatever the hell you can get from him in, in the, you know, the biggest series of his life. It was so huge. I mean, the, the the magnitude of that series was so ridiculous. I tend to agree. I, mean, I certainly can't think of a, any game, any individual game that was bigger than that game seven. I don't even know what the next closest one would be. Uh, because as you mentioned, just the, not the caliber, but certainly the magnitude of the personalities and the players involved on both sides, what it ultimately meant and how they played in that final game. It, it, it was It was just an incredible event. And I will leave you with this note of humor that has just crossed my Twitter line, Rob, from our good friend Fred Katz, the host of Locked On Thunder on the Locked On Podcast Network. Have you already seen it? Kevin Durant's restaurant in downtown Oklahoma City is closing for (laughs) rebranding. It was inevitable, I guess. I mean, Andrew Kay of the New York Times had a great piece on this whole uh, kind of upspring economy around Durant and the Thunder in Oklahoma City and what would happen in just this scenario. I think a lot of businesses are going to be re- rethinking their models, you know, this month and the months to come, which is the, the NBA is such a strange place. All, all of this stuff that just kind of pops up around it that depends on Durant being there and Durant being Durant. Um, I don't know. I hope they don't have to change their menu. Hopefully their head chef gets to hang around. That's right. He's Rob Mahoney. You can read him at SI.com slash NBA. His Twitter account and his Twitter description are awesomely simplistic. I write basketball things for Sports Illustrated. You can follow him at his name, at Rob Mahoney. His writing, though, is far more than simplistic. Really great detailed pieces throughout the year with great breakdown level and also super insight on individual players uh, and individual teams. So, Rob, keep up the great work. Thanks so much for the time on Lockdown NBA today. I really appreciate it. Hey, no, I appreciate you having me. That was super cool. Thanks so much to Rob Mahoney. Tweet him a thank you at at Rob Mahoney. I would greatly appreciate that. Check out your favorite NBA team on their Locked On podcast. There's some great ones out there right now. So check out and search on iTunes for Locked On, your favorite team's name, and subscribe to those podcasts as well. Subscribe to Locked On NBA and make this a part of your podcast world. Special thanks to Casper and to Mac Weldon. Go to casper.com slash locked to get your $50 off and go to macweldon.com, use the promo code locked, and you get 20% off. Thanks very much for tuning into Locked On NBA and making the Locked On Podcast Network such a great success.